Blackfoot's great. Those are some good dollar records. I know a guy named uh, Shakedown with a stop sign that says fuck you tattooed on his neck that would love to talk to you guys about Blackfoot for a few hours. <laughs> what the fuck was that sentence? <laughs> that's that's Dubuque, baby. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, author of the new book, Schadenfreudian Self-Care, How to Reinvent Doom Scrolling in These Trying Times. <laughs> wow, what a... You're knocking it out of the park there. I, you like that? Yeah. I'm the real host of the show, Jeremy Ruggles, collector and destroyer of Altoid Tins. <laughs> I am Peter Cook, fact checker for the KMFDM fact page. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. It's a tough job, but God damn it, you were born for this. You know it. And I'm Ryan Werner, the fact checker for the MDFMK fact page. Ooh, beautiful. <laughs> Which well, was another right. incarnation of KMFDM. Did we ever figure out if that does stand for kill motherfucking Depeche Mode or not? It doesn't really, but uh, I'm the fact checker, and I can't remember what it stands for because I check the facts. I don't know them. I check them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I was going to ask. I know it. I mean, I know everything's locked up real tight in the MDFMK side here, so I, I could have fielded any questions, but, you know. I think it's like no pity for the majority. Oh, that's... Is what it... That's not as good. <laughs> I'm just reporting the facts here, or what I remember to be the case. I, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not your fault. <laughs> I, like many of our listeners, have no idea what you guys are talking about, but don't tell me. Just leave it that way. Yeah, we'll move on. <laughs> what do you want to talk about then, Jeremy? Guest Ryan Warner. Here he is. Wanna, do you want to tell them what we are going to talk about? Oh, we're going to talk about the album Watertown by Frank Sinatra, which is the only Frank Sinatra record I have ever heard in my life, because I don't eat at Italian restaurants at four p.m. with my grandparents do you feel like you've been missing out on like a essential part of your life up until this point by not having that experience no nah, i mean most of my grandparents are dead at least three quarters of them so it's like you know they got other stuff going on you mean at least there's got to be a service where you could like rent a fake grandparent to go to an italian restaurant with you just google it <laughs> i will google it buy old people okay. for the day <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, and dear listener, you might wonder why we're talking about Frank Sinatra of all people. He's not a a hidden unknown artist, but this album is a hidden gem. True. I I must agree with that. It's uh it's a sleeper. There's a lot of records that are on the list of best Frank Sinatra records and ones that get hyped and just one just keeps falling through the cracks and there's no good reason for that, as we will all learn together on this episode. Yeah, this is the only album of his that did not break the Billboard 100, which is crazy, because he put out like, I don't know, 4,000 albums probably. <laughs> like 80 that maybe? That is accurate. But let's start with the, the first song, the title track, Watertown. This is like the establishing shot of the film where they're kind of panning across the cityscape and showing you where the movie's taking place. Yeah, you can almost see the credits. And you can almost h hear the, the credits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I get visual with this album. It's an experience. All right, Watertown, side one, track one. Nothing much happening down on Main Except a little rain 
the perfect crime Killing time And no one's going anywhere Living's much too easy there It can never be a lonely place When there's the shelter of familiar faces Who can say It's not that way Old Watertown So much excitement to be found I was not familiar with this album at all until I was told that we were going to be doing an episode on it. And within the first, the opening bars, you know, heard the first few notes and it tracked. It sounded like Frank Sinatra. And then that almost sounds like a palm muted guitar, electric guitar started clicking in and I knew that I was in for a completely new experience with what I knew of Frank Sinatra's music to be. And I wasn't disappointed. Yeah, definitely. I kind of had a similar thing. I pretty new to this record. I've owned it for, I don't know, a couple months at this point, but yeah, the, I love, I love it when you get that intersection of rock instrumentation with the orchestra or classical influence and seeing where they meet reminds me of like David Axelrod production and things like that. It's yeah, it's amazing. It works so good on this record. Did you guys know any much about like listen to a lot of Sinatra before this record? All that I really own is a CD, so that tells you, first of all, how devoted I am to listening to this on a regular basis, <laughs> as I don't have a good working CD player in my house other than the Blu-ray player on my TV. But I've had it for a number of years. It's like a super hits, Frank Sinatra, and I think most of the stuff on it is from the 40s and 50s. Begin the Begin, Nancy the Coffee Song, that's really, honestly, you know, aside from the big iconic songs like My Way and uh, what's the night one, Something in the Night, Strangers in the Night. I can't remember that. <laughs> it is a hit from a few <laughs> years before this from 1966, Strangers in the Night. Aside from those, I guess I'm really not that familiar with his vast discography. Yeah, like a truck stop comp of his stuff. Like, oh, yeah, it's got like yeah. these 11 <laughs> songs that I like. Pretty kinda. much like, <laughs> exactly what I have. I only owned one Frank record before this, and that is his 1955 album in the wee small hours, which was the album that made me really get into Frank Sinatra. Like, you know, I was obviously familiar with the hits before that. I think this album was on one of those, like, you know, 500 albums to hear before you die kind of thing. It was like really high in the list. I'm like, I don't think I actually know that Frank record. Does he have some kind of hidden gem? And sure enough, total masterpiece i've owned before that like various albums of his i got a dollar bins like september of my years my way like the common ones that you see all the time and everyone i, I liked some of the tracks but not all of them generally like only the sad songs were the ones i really liked yeah. <laughs> that frank did so i eventually sold everything but in the wee small hours because i was just like if i'm gonna listen to it that's the one i want to hear and then uh thanks to my buddies ryan and jeremy over here pointing out that there's another sad boy frank record out there that's worth owning i now have two frank sinatra records this is hot damn this is the only one i've ever heard and it was pitched to me probably 10 15 years ago as like like oh this is this is frank's scott walker record that's exactly i was gonna make that comparison that it reminds me mm. of like scott one uh-huh. or two yeah the very early solo scott walker records i definitely heard that i almost get like a especially in the opening track, like a weird sort of 
a wholesome Serge Gainsbourg sound. Like if they would have hit a groove, it, it would have <laughs> been there. Like if they just would have dialed back the like highball glass full of spermicidal lube vibe, it would have like, <laughs> it would have been totally it. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say the other guy that the production of this reminds me of is Jean-Claude Vanier, who did like some of the most famous Serge Gainsbourg records. Mm. So yeah, perfect comparison. Yeah. And of course, Jacques Brel comes to mind, and that was a huge influence on Scott Walker. For sure. Definitely. Definitely. So it's also interesting for me being familiar with his album in the wee small hours, because that's 15 years before this. And it's kind of the same vibe, like the same character almost. It's just with a completely different approach to the orchestration behind it. So it's really interesting to, to hear the difference of 15 years there. Yeah. As you said, this album came out in 1970. Which, if you know about Frank Sinatra, you know that's not a time he was big. He was big through the 40s and the 50s with the Rat Pack and Las Vegas thing and TV and movies and everything. But by the time this album comes around, Frank isn't wanted anymore. And I didn't see many people, there's a lot of people online that really like this album and there's a cult following, but I didn't see people making this connection between the character in the album, who is a man whose wife just left him and the kids and he lives in a small town. And, you know, the character in the album is this not wanted anymore person, but that's who Frank is at this point in 1969 when he starts recording it. His album sales are declining. He's not wanted by the audience anymore. They're moving off to the city like his wife and looking for the more interesting, newer, younger music out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he had like a couple hits around this record with some of his other releases, but uh, shortly after this, he's kind of gone for a while too. Like this is... He retired. One of his last... Yeah, yeah, totally. He retired and then he came back, but after this album, he just stopped performing and announced that he was retiring. So, okay. Yeah, I wondered if there was any like official word like that. So, yeah, it's an interesting closing piece <laughs> to the his career up until that point. And yeah, when when you put it in the perspective of the artist, it it is an even more powerful record. When did he and I don't know if any of you guys will know this, when did he start getting sort of like a cultural cachet as a as a throwback who doesn't really need to do anything fun because it sounds like at this point he almost ran the risk of sort of like you know you're you're Dino Washington or something where it's like you were immensely popular at one point in time and then you're just never even brought up or thought of now I feel like with someone like Sinatra it's like people look back on him and look at those you know, those handful of hit songs are like, oh yeah, he's just, he's just like the best. From my experience, that's been like within the last 10 years, because that was an artist who like, when I started working in record stores in like 2009 or 2008, that was a guy who we just had like boxes full of his records around. No one wanted to buy any of them. It didn't matter. And then gradually I started seeing more and more young people picking them up and his oftentimes his records were totally sold out and are like that in a lot of places now. And I don't know necessarily what exactly happened for that to be the case. Like normally there's like a movie or a reference or like, like very famous soundtrack usage or something, but I don't know. It just kind of seems to be like a, a natural shift for a lot of people. I don't know if maybe I feel like his daughter has gained popularity in the last decade or so as well that makes sense i mean not to say that she wasn't popular before that but i feel like she especially you know having done work with like lee hazelwood mm -hmm. and whatnot it's definitely her records have gone up in value and maybe by family proxy frank has as well could be hmm. yeah mere speculation on my <laughs> no research done there i want to play the song Goodbye, which, in my opinion, really captures what's going on in this album. It's kind of the explanation. It's also... If you love desserts, it's the song for you. 
If you love desserts, it's a song for you. But also Bob Gaudio, who produced it and was also the keyboardist with the Four Seasons, which we'll get into later, said that this is the song that the entire album grew out of. They wrote this song and then they decided to expand it out into a full concept album. So this is side one, track two, Goodbye. There is no great big ending, no sunset in the sky. There is no string ensemble, and she doesn't even cry. And just as I begin to say that we should make another try, she reaches out across the table, looks at me and quietly says, Goodbye. There is no big explosion, no tempest in the tea. The world does not stop turning round, there's no big tragedy. Sitting in a coffee shop with cheesecake and some apple pie. Reaches out across the table, looks at me, and quietly says, Goodbye, goodbye, said so easily, Goodbye, said so quietly, Goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye Just two always strangers avoid each other's eyes One still make believing One still telling lies She tells me that I'm not to blame But when I ask the reason why She reaches out across the table Looks at me and quietly says goodbye I think that song actually speaks a lot to what gives Frank Sinatra some of that longevity and some of his resurgence in popularity. I think we're not the only ones that are more interested in these kind of like weirdo loner Frank Sinatra records. A lot of people. And also even in in his like bigger hit, more happy songs, there is a little bit of an inherent sadness or at least like very apparent humanity in his voice, uh, which you don't get that as often with a lot of the other big pop vocal lounge singers of the day. A lot of them were more showy and less honest with their vocal delivery. Whereas Frank was just so good at having just the slightest changes in like tone and manipulation of the way he says the words and the way he's singing, just like was able to convey so much without over singing anything. Yeah, that was something I noted was how subdued his delivery is. I've heard people criticize before that he doesn't sing, he just talks, but it's, (laughs) it's so much more than that. There's so much art to like a simple delivery. There's a beautiful honesty to the message of that song, which stands in contrast, I feel like, to how a lot of pop music portrays breakups in this very dramatic, blow-up-y, tearful thing. And this is this very opposite reaction where the tragedy is in how quiet and empty it is of feeling. And... You can hear that in his like subdued delivery and like kind of listless sort of voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the title track's just a pop punk song. It's just a dude who just got broken up with bitching about how his hometown sucks. Like, <laughs> I, th- I think he does. I think he does a great job on this record of just like you guys said, just like underplaying it. And then when he leans in, it's in all the right spots on that. Uh, the track for a while. I mean, it kind of has like 
baby's first string arrangement going on in the background, but it like really shows off his power as like the narrator for the record. And like the song kind of has the whole, like the same structure lyrically, like some day-to-day stuff just kind of happens. And he's like, no, I no, no one knows, you know? And he like turns it around twice. And the first time it's like, okay, everything's normal, except they, they don't know that I'm over you. And then he turns around and he, and he goes for a while and he just totally sells it. And it, it's with a with a wink, not a chuckle. To paraphrase our friend uh, Bobby Bucko, there. <laughs> the uh, the lyricist for this was a guy named Jake Holmes, and I saw that on the Wikipedia article they have him describing each song or some of the backstory or how he came up with it. And for the one that we just listened to, "Goodbye," subtitled, she quietly says, he said that he had the line in his head: "There was no tempest in the tea." Which is a line I really liked it while we were listening. I mentioned that I really liked that while we were listening to that. And then, uh, Ryan, you said that the cheesecake line that follows it, not so much. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> it, it just really knocks me out of the song. Like, why are you getting so specific about the desserts? And are, are you eating both of them? Or are they just sitting there? Are you watching someone eating them? Because there's cheesecake and apple pie that gets ordered here. Yeah, it just sounds like beer before liquor. Like, you can't eat both of those. They're kind of, like, very oppositional. I, I wouldn't. It, you're gilding the lily we should have uh tr- i don't know if jake holmes is still with us we should track him down and question this stuff <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was cool that, that kind of helped me sort of wrap my head around uh the themes behind the songs as i was listening to this because i've only listened through twice now so it's i always like when you can get a story behind the songs and it, this actually kind of when i learned about how this album was made it kind of reminded me a little bit of uh Waylon Jennings honky-tonk heroes in that regard that it's you know someone else's work not that i don't think frank sinatra really ever wrote his own songs though right he was mostly performed other people's songs i think so but um i think he was very hands-on with the arrangements of the songs but i don't know if he really wrote any of the stuff he did i could be wrong though yeah, there's four of us here, and I don't think any of us are certain. So we can move on from that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that song, the delivery of that one really started to win me over. When I first started, the the first time I listened to this, I wasn't sure how I felt about it, you know. And uh, by the second listen, I knew that I really liked this album and that it was a really strong outing. You mentioned briefly how this album was made. Well, you didn't mention how it was made, so I was going to mention that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, let's go there. Yeah, Bob Gaudio and Frank Valley, Frankie Valley. Yeah, both of the Four Seasons wrote all the music for this album, and then, as you mentioned, Jake Holmes was the lyricist who wrote the words, famous for also writing Zeppelin's "Dazed and Confused" and. Be All That You Can Be, as in the Army commercial. (laughs) Oh, wow. He did a bunch of jingles, didn't he? Yeah, he did a bunch of jingles, a bunch of pop hits. He had a huge range of, you know, stuff he'd write words for, I guess. But they wrote the album and then approached Frank with it, kind of expecting Frank to maybe want to do one of the songs on his next album. But Frank decided he wanted to do the whole thing he loved it so So, was goodbye goodbye was written just for whoever to do and then once frank decided he wanted to do goodbye they wrote they wrote watertown specifically for him or was the album written frank's like oh i i'll do this album yeah they wrote the whole album worth of songs it all started with goodbye but then they wrote the whole album and then they took the songs to frank okay so it was conceived as an entire idea when they brought it to him. Yeah. Yep. And if you look through the credits, there's roughly 400,000 people playing on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so Frank Sinatra's got 4,000 albums and there's 400,000 playing on this. <laughs> yeah. I would say 6% of Americans are on a Frank Sinatra record, <laughs> if my numbers are correct. Well, I'm just the KMFDM fact checker, not the uh, <laughs> the Frank Sinatra fact checker, not the Sinatra one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm surprised yeah. you didn't know about the uh, Tupac trying to redo this in the '90s about Long Beach. No, I did mm. not know about that. 
Yeah, I uh, made it up for Peter right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, should, I should have said, oh, I know about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure I know about that. So it is not surprising you uh, had not heard of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well but played. that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah, it, it could have totally happened. <laughs> you know, with the multiverse, <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of stuff yep. that could happen. Oh yeah, Jeremy, you've you've known this album for a while, as have I. How strong do you think the concept of the concept record is? Because I don't think I would have picked up on it if I hadn't known it was a concept record. Yeah, I think if you don't know ahead of time that that's what you're delving into, it doesn't necessarily like jump out at you yeah the songs don't really lead into one another and you could just think that it's a whole like divorce album but not actually like a concept Mm -hmm. running through it which is honestly fine with me because i feel like what separates this from a real concept album is basically just like skits and filler songs so yeah i'm fine with this not being a double album that's half bullshit yeah i could i'm glad there's only one michael and peter on there there's not you know, six more of them where it's just like the worst of the worst. Like that song just gives me bad. Like it, it reminds me like the weak parts of something like the lamb lies down on Broadway or something where it's like the good songs are great, but then you get something like this and it's like, did I get tricked into going to my buddies? Like all too autobiographical one man show. I don't, I don't need to listen to you do a show full of shit. I listened to you bitch about last week. Like this doesn't, this doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, and that's uh, you said that was the nadir for you, Michael and Peter. That was the low point. Oh, it's brutal, and it just goes on forever. It's like the part, it's like the song in a, I don't know if you guys watch musicals or anything like that, but there's always like a song in the musical that sucks because it's just crammed full of exposition. Like, okay, we got to get like a song, <laughs> like we got to get everybody up to speed on something very quick. Like, let's let's have a song where we're just talking about what has happened to get us to this point. So, and for me, that song is just like, oh, you know, we had heavy rain in the spring and then it was dry in the summer and roses are coming up. House needs some paint. Like, holy shit. Like, what are you talking <laughs> Like, I don't need to know <laughs> any of this. It's a to-do list. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> like, I'm glad you've got a summer to work on the house and stuff and like the air in the country smells great, but like, I don't need to hear about it for five <laughs> minutes in a multi-part song with, you know, the, a man needs a maid strings in the background. Listen, oh. I, I am I'm actually the Michael and Peter fact checker, so I'm just here to tell you that it's three minutes and ten seconds long. <laughs> well, it felt like five. <laughs> uh, I really wanted Fair. to like it because it had my name in it, but it, yeah, it was definitely for me. I thought it was one of the weaker moments of the album, so I think we're all on the same page there for the most part. <laughs> Even the most biased among us can't get down with Michael and Peter. <laughs> Yeah. Are there any other songs that we can all get down with that maybe we want to listen to though, or is there more info that needs to be talked? Working about? Man by Rush. Can we all get down by that with that song? Oh hell yeah! Oh, you meant spe- <laughs> you meant specifically on this record. Yeah. Also, I don't like Rush. Oh, that's why I haven't listened to any Sinatra records. I'm like, man, there's just so much Rush to listen to. I don't have time for Sinatra. You know. <laughs> that is what held him back for so long. <laughs> Basically, as soon as Rush started getting big, Frank was like, well. Better pack it yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, it just, yeah. the, you know, it just cannibalizes the audience that just loves the, both those artists so much. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, yeah, the world's not big enough to have both of them in existence at the same time. I believe my father-in-law who listens to this is both a Sinatra and Rush fan. So, hello, Mark. Mark, you rule. Come to my van sometime, dude. <laughs> um, as far as a track on this record, I really love What a Funny Girl You Used to Be, even though I kind of don't get it and think it's kind of nonsense but again frank sells it no it's not nonsense True. he's talking about their like early relationship and all that they're, in, it they're having dinner with this. dolls and stuff well yeah they're high school sweethearts you did that in high school you didn't i get well <laughs> not with not with a girl like just myself well when was when was frank in high school like 1943 no, he was already Probably huge by that. then, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he was born in 1915, so probably like 1932. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> they were all playing with dolls in high school at that well, point. I guess they didn't have Halo back then, or fucking whatever. Yeah. So. <laughs> Fine. All right, side two, track two. What a funny girl you used to be. You always looked 
a little out of place All grown up with freckles on your face We'd spend each night with company Just you, the teddy bear, the dolls and me What a funny girl you used to be You always had a thousand things to do Getting all involved in something new Some new recipe The kitchen Always looked like World War Three. What a funny girl You used to be It was so good With you around You always found a smile Where smiles could not be found I never ever met A person more sincere You'd always listen With an open ear. Something that song reminds me of is that, like, this record is a lot funkier than you usually would hear from Frank Sinatra or a lot of his contemporaries, but it's like very subtly funky. You know, you've got a lot of songs where there's the string section is heavy and then just this, like, subtle but very funky and quiet, like, bass and drum line will come in behind it. And it's just so perfect every time. Yeah, I suspect that's the Four Seasons influence. Definitely. And that's a band I don't really know a whole lot about, but I've I've had like indicators over the years that that's a group I would probably like a lot more if I really dug in. So it's kind of been on my list of artists to dive in on eventually. So this this album just makes me even more curious about uh, what are the what are the sleeper hits from the Four Seasons. Yeah, I think there's a lot more than like Big Girls Don't Cry and Walk Like a Man. For sure. I didn't do any research on the Four Seasons just because I assumed that you would already know about all that stuff, Sean. <laughs> yeah, every, everybody's got gaps in their knowledge. Sherry Baby. I, I really don't get that they're childhood sweethearts from that song, though. It's just, I, I don't. You don't have to. It's cryptic. Yeah, I think the first time I heard it, I was for a minute like, wait, is he talking about his ex-wife or his daughter uh, or like, what? what is he singing about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the, if, you're, if you're not paying attention, it's it's wonderful. And then the chorus, the chorus is great. You know, he's got a great vocal melody and delivery on the, you know, what a funny girl you used to be like that, whole, that like him singing that line sells it. But yeah, mm-hmm. the rest of the song, I'm like, I don't, I don't understand this. But I think it plays into <laughs> what my theory is for the ending of the record. And I think oh. I think she dies. Oh, you're one of those. Yeah, I think she doesn't I think she doesn't come back because she dies before she can make it back. Is there anything that points to that? I saw that people believe this, but I I, I don't know. I didn't know that this this is something I came to independently. I haven't been to the Watertown message board in a few years here, so I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think she I think she planned to come back, but like you know, so like in what a funny girl, we find out that she's you know kind of a sucker. It says uh, you know I never I never ever met a person more sincere. You'd always listen with an open ear. You'd fall for lines so easily. Whatever they were selling, you'd buy three. So I think she yeah. just kind of gets sucked into something that's a little too big because then on the next track, she says she's sleeping well and, you know, she's lost weight and she's seen some shows, but, you know, like the this, this, this city's strange, she says. So it just seems like hollow assurance with some truth sneaking through and, 
you know, when she doesn't show up on the train, I'm assuming just whatever she got caught up in made her not make it. Interesting. I just took that song to be like, she's moved on and she's living her city life. And then always imagined the end with the train that Frank's character just assumed she was coming back for no good reason. And she didn't, obviously. Hmm. See, now I'm going to say that if Ryan's theory is correct, which makes sense to me, then I think that also makes songs like Michael and Peter make a lot more sense because it feels like one of the themes of this is not only is, you know, he's this guy whose life is falling apart. He doesn't know what to do about it, but it's also from the perspective of someone who's very like working class, small town and kind of has this vibe of like, he can't show these emotions that he's feeling and he doesn't know how to express it. So that's why you have these like seemingly very boring songs where all he has to talk about is the stuff that's unimportant because he doesn't know how to talk about anything else. Ooh, you reframed it. Yeah. And the, the emotion is kind of like just barely hidden. So it would make sense that there would be these other themes in here that are kind of alluded to from that same perspective. Damn. Dang. Makes you sense. have been to the Watertown message board lately. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, there is a good website out there called Watertownology of this guy who made this nice website and has interviewed some of the people associated with the album and is kind of on this crusade to spread the word of how good this record is. Oh, wow. So there's some real fandom behind this. Oh, yeah. There's like a cult of people who all agree that this is not just overlooked as a Frank Sinatra album, but perhaps his best album. Wow. Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with so that. So there, there are other people that think she died. That's not just something. Oh yeah. I mean, oh yeah, cool. I, I don't feel like a, well I don't feel like a dipshit up. then. <laughs> I was like, is this is this fucking dumb? <laughs> like, does this make any sense? But someone else thought it too. Wonderful. Good. Yeah. I feel good about that. <laughs> From reading interviews and stuff with Jake Holmes, who wrote the lyrics, it doesn't seem at all that that's what he intended but things are also pretty open-ended in a lot of the lines that could i mean you could interpret it that way clearly you guys have and can back it up so <laughs> but that's again that's part of the charm of this album is he's not hitting you over the head with it the concept is there if you want to find it but it's also just a very pleasant listen i didn't think about any of that stuff in the f like few times I've listened to this record before this, because I was just mainly focused on like how good his delivery was and how interesting the music was behind it. So like I, I knew it was a concept album. I picked up on a few things here and there, but I wasn't focusing in on the lyrics at all before this. So it's fun to re-examine it from that lens. It's like Pinkerton by Weezer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I can get down with this. I don't know if uh, Sean and Jeremy will know anything about that record. Uh, I'm not a hater. I just don't, I never had that phase. <laughs> yeah. You had to be born between like 1970 and 1986 or 87 to have that phase. I think I'm born in. two years too late. <laughs> Jeremy's in. <laughs> I have listened to a decent amount of Pinkerton though. I don't know anything about it being a concept album. It's oh, yeah. loosely based on Madam Butterfly, the opera. Oh yeah. yeah I guess I did know that. Yeah, there's definitely recurring motifs that allude to that in the lyrics and the album artwork. Yeah. It was originally an even bigger project called Songs from the Black Hole, a rock opera, but they abandoned that and went with a different direction. But we'll, uh, I'll save that for when I guest on a Weezer podcast. <laughs> Just give them a little taste. Yeah. Let them know what they could have. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, as was stated, Frank retired, but then he comes back. My kind of read on it is when he comes back, he's sort of just cashing in on the nostalgia around Frank Sinatra and this old image of him. And I kind of feel like this album, though it not technically is his last, it's like his last as an artist in my mind. I don't know if that's fair to say at all, but that's how I feel. Yeah, because it, it seems like what little I know about the material he produced after this point is it was generally more from that, like, how do I, how do I word this? Like, 
it cash wasn't grab. like he had anything to prove. Yeah, he was just cashing. He's cashing in on his legacy for sure. He's he's playing the part. He's settling into that like old guard image that they love to do with some of these classic artists kind of thing. It's like if Scott Walker would have never come back and made like Tilt and the drift Bish-bosh. and stuff. Bish, but I still haven't listened to that whole record. I've tried. <laughs> It's it's very long and weird. It's daunting. Yeah. It, it, it's like, have you ever wanted to listen to like 10 Frank Zappa songs played at the same time for an hour and a half? Like, <laughs> no, man, I fucking haven't. Like, we'll we'll throw in free fart sounds. Like, nah, still going to pass. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. At some point, they'll add something that'll sell you on it. But <laughs> Well, speaking of similar artists, I put together another playlist for this week. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. You guys want to hear about some of the highlights? would love to hear it. Give us the highlights. Yeah, Jeremy and I have been uh, focus grouping this podcast. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, but uh, we're, we're thinking that the people would like it if they just got the highlights instead of the full list of the artists. Because mm. then, you know, you got to go and listen to the playlist to see what else is on there. That's wise. I think that will... Also, uh, Jeremy likes to remind me that not everybody is as nerdy as uh, Peter and I are. <laughs> I just want to hear a bunch of names. <laughs> yeah. It's not the, the Sean and Peter facts hour. <laughs> Uh, yeah okay i concede (laughs) unlike some people i concede (laughs) (laughs) whoa all right so here's a couple uh dollar bin artists that i think have some similarities to frank sinatra and this record when possible i tried to get a lot of records uh by these artists that came out the same year or very close to the year of watertown so you can get kind of a vibe of what other people are doing around this time uh, so you got some Four Seasons in there, uh, Roy Orbison, Del Shannon, I got some more loungy singers, Peggy Lee, some Brazilian stuff. Uh, Frank did a couple records with Antonio Carlos Jobim, so I put uh, one of their collaboration tracks and then one of the tracks that Antonio did on the CTI label from an album called Stoneflower. That is very, very good if anybody finds that. Sammy Davis Jr., of course, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Mahalia Jackson at Mahalia. Her, is, Mahalia. That's right. I was like, shoot, I just remembered. <laughs> Peter told me how to pronounce it correctly. Uh, yeah, at Peter's recommendation, we put a Mahalia Jackson track in there. I'm sure we'll be doing a record by her soon. soon. Yep. Yes, yes. The Platters, Chambers Brothers, Quincy Jones, who worked a lot with Frank at times, Tony Bennett, Les Paul and Mary Ford, oh, yeah. Dinah Washington. And ended it with that hot collaboration between Frank Sinatra and Willie Nelson doing a version of My Way. Mm, I don't think I've heard that. That's cool. It's great. Guess I'll have to listen to that playlist. <laughs> if you or anyone else that's interested in any of that <laughs> want to hear the full playlist, you can go to Spotify and just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, just letters, no symbols, and you can find the playlist from this episode and every other season two episode as well Mm -hmm. and you know remember uh whenever you're having your conversations about podcasts you listen to with friends you know you're probably having to do this in some like zoom conference meeting right now you're not doing this around the water cooler in our covid times but remember to bring up i buy that for a dollar word of mouth is one of the best ways to get word out on a podcast Mm -hmm. tell the people make us famous please Sean, we have not received a single email from anyone thanking you for making those playlists. So I would like to personally thank you for making those playlists. Aw, thank you for thanking me. Our yeah. audience is so unappreciative. <laughs> I uh, I haven't thanked Sean, but I have bitched that he's left stuff out and then listened to the rest of the playlist, if that counts. <laughs> and then I added the thing that he was bitching about because... You got to keep you got to keep our hot guests. It's happy. true. My uh, my my rider has been very uh, unfulfilling. <laughs> well, we'll we'll do our best. <laughs> wow. So there's like a hundred things we could go on about Frank Sinatra about, but you can do that on your own time. There's like biographies and stuff. I think yeah. the, the like quick and dirty or the part that is interesting to me. How Sean said you can hear the humanity in his voice. Frank Sinatra, from reading about him, comes off as this extremely insecure guy who has a temper and has 
a fraught history with violence and friends of his describe being extremely uneasy in his presence. And beneath that, though, there's this like very hurt dude who is extremely good at singing like a hurt dude. He's got some, so, uh, John, some John Denver moments. Like, oh, this guy seems cool. Like, uh... oh, he has a lot of bad moments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want to read into it, it's he was not a great human being. He did charitable things and he made some great art, but he had a lot of bad things in his history as well. Are any of you familiar with the story of his son, Frank Jr., getting kidnapped for ransom? No. No. <laughs> Not at okay, all. Okay, well, I'm not going to go into it all here, but <laughs> the, uh, what a tease. You can, you can definitely check out uh, Ira Glass, This American Life. I think in 2002, interviewed the mastermind behind that, a guy named Barry Keenan. And it's fascinating. Barry Keenan only did a few years in prison and has been out for decades now for having kidnapped Frank Jr. son, but he basically just did it as like a business move. He was like a real estate guy who was failing at the time and just wanted $240,000. You know, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, this was the best way he could think to do it was, you know, and you think, yeah, you've kidnapped Frank Sinatra son. Now you got both the FBI and the mob coming after you. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say certainly frowned upon. (laughs) It was like the worst kept secret in the world that Frank was mob connected. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we've, uh, we've now uncovered one of the best kept secrets, Watertown. Exactly. You're welcome world. Watertown. And yeah, thank you all of you because I was not familiar with this and uh, I'll be listening to it more. Ooh, it looks like we got a potential, we got a potential top five for Peter from this year, maybe. Mm Hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe <laughs> it's uh, up there with Kid Creel. <laughs> Brian, was there anything you wanted to tell the people that you're working on? Perhaps I am making a record right now of like songs that are a minute and twenty seconds long. I don't know, trying to fit in a bunch of triple guitar leads and nonsense lyrics with like you know verse, verse, guitar solo. That's it. Get out of there. But I also have a band camp with the records I have made. It is ryanwerner.bandcamp.com. Uh, last year, I made an album, wrote and recorded an album every month. They are all up there. And yeah, I'm going to be doing some more stuff here. Uh, you can search my name on the Hard Times uh, website. I've got a few articles up there. I think a couple newer ones mm. since, since the last time I was on. Yeah, do you have any uh do you have a famously rejected one you want to drop on us while you're here? Um uh, I'm I'm not sure if I let me let me see what I've got here. The Hard Times is a parody website. Uh yeah, I, music parody website. I think the last one I got picked up was a uh, snare sound from Saint Anger announces 2020 presidential run. <laughs> <laughs> Quality. There was something about Billy Corgan I know in your rejects list Man, that I loved. There always is. I just love to clown on that fucking dude. Um, yeah, one of the one of the Billy Corgan ones was uh, we sit down with Batboy and reminisce about his classic album Siamese Dream. <laughs> <laughs> there was another one. Billy Corgan stares into the abyss, and the abyss looks the other way. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Oh, oh, that's beautiful. That's that. That seems like it should be a Corgan lyric. <laughs> Man, that new Pumpkins record is really bad. <laughs> I'm very surprised. Oh, Sean, this one is for uh, you here. Uh, we rank the five best rush shirts to buy your wife on your last anniversary. <laughs> wow, <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, but yeah, I'm I'm doing. I'm always kind of tinkering with some stuff i'm uh i'm out there on the internet yeah werner on instagram for some nonsense i've uh i'm off facebook at the moment but i'm sure when i'm back on i'll be clowning some shit here and there excellent well thank you again for joining us were we going to go out on what's now is now yeah we're leaving originally i was thinking the train because it's the last album and it kind of closes the loop of you know he's waiting for his wife to come back 
by the train platform. She doesn't come back. But what's now is now is clearly the better song. So we're gonna leave the people with that one. Yeah. It's some- also the the Spotify playlist starts with the train. So there you go. People can still hear that great track from this oh, album. Movia strip. <laughs> I thought this was uh it was funny that in this song, the electric guitar, there's what our good friend Isaac Turner calls a clam. <laughs> it sounds like the guitarist doesn't quite get his fingers on the fretboard where they're supposed to be in time. And it's right after Sinatra says, just one mistake is not enough to change my mind. And then you hear that guitar and it's perfect that it does. It just doesn't quite land. Yeah. That's Vinnie Bell who we might do an episode on. Yeah. Yeah. Famous session guitarist. Yeah. He was, uh, Made a lot of cool guitar effects. We won't go on about. We'll go on about him in another episode. But thanks for listening right. to this episode. Yeah, my name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. I was Jeremy Ruggles. Uh, and I am currently Jeremy Ruggles, actually. And also Ryan Warner. Sick. What's now is now. <laughs> to f-